Welcome to this podcast where director Jeff T. Thomas chats with some of the most talented TV and film directors in the industry. This is an in-depth look at how they got into the business, as well as sharing some of the most defining moments in their career. This is The Director's Podcast. My next guest started his career making super low-budget music videos in England. His work includes movies such as Hard Candy, 30 Days of Night, and the Twilight Saga Eclipse. His television credits include Pilots for American Gods, Hannibal, and most recently, Bark Skins. He has also directed Breaking Bad and episodes of Black Mirror, including the Emmy Award-winning Bandersnatch. When I spoke to David Slade, I asked him if he remembered the first time that he realized that he wanted to work in the film industry. Yeah, the industry part kind of came much later because I wasn't really focused at the beginning. I was making things. I was really enjoying making things. And it didn't occur to me that they would give you money to do this. Um, so so it, it took a while before I was like, oh, this could actually be, you know, uh, my life. Um, I started out in journalism. I started out, I was a BMXer. I love BMX. I did BMX journalism and I picked up a video camera to start shooting bikes, you know. And I did the first one, which was called Smart People in a Car Crash, which is like an hour long, like, BMX video. Which I released on VHS and, and sold, and people bought through the mental. Um, and so this is when I'm beginning to understand that um, storytelling, which is what I like the most, uh, has another side of it, which is somewhat internal. And it's to do with the way you think about things as opposed to the way you just nuts and bolts tell stories. Uh, we'll talk more about that stuff a bit later, I guess. But so the beginning, I failed at school. All the things I did didn't really work out, didn't really interest anyway, because I was BMXing and I liked that and I was writing. I wanted to write stories and I was a journalist and I was writing for BMX magazines and loving music. Industrial music was just happening. Uh, Joy Division had just happened. New Order were beginning. Like, I think one of the first records I bought was Blue Monday, you know. And um, so all of that culture, and I was in Sheffield, which is north of England. Um, I, I, my, the earliest part of my kind of starts were in Warmwell Barnsley, which is a small town, like a pit town at the time, although everyone was out of work because of Thatcher. Um, and all of the union fights. My parents, uh, my dad was a car mechanic at that point. My mom was working as a nurse. I don't know how old I am, uh, 15, 16, 17. Um, and so we moved to Sheffield. Uh, I'm understanding culturally that there's a side to telling stories that can that has to do with pictures. I'm taking photographs, not great at photo photography, but I'm loving doing, I made a little fanzine, Damage it was called, because it was all punk rock at the time. And I guess the closest thing I got to mentors at that point, there was a, there was a, a magazine called BMX Action Bike, and the editor of that, a guy called Tim Layton Boyce, who was a great photographer, just was really encouraging, he'd read my writing. I remember at one point him encouraging me to watch Nicholas Rogue, <laughs> you know, read uh, Jorge Luis Borges, you know. Um, we talked about Stephen Burkhoff, and I'm still like 17, 16 or whatever. And um, so I started trying to make little films based on the little stories that I was writing. And quickly people who saw them went, oh, that's interesting. And so I, I managed to convince my folks that I, you know, wasn't going to be like, uh, you know, an accountant or all the other things that made money. And that, you know, and I think I remember we did like a, there was a teacher association meeting or whatever, where they come and tell you your kid's doing terrible and he'll never become, amount to anything. And this one teacher in the English department said to my dad, you know, if he does media, it's, it's good money in media. And that pricked up my dad's ears. After winning his father's support, David applied and got into college where he studied journalism. And it was and it was one of those like nobody really knew what they were doing. It was more of a community thing. And and I was just like, oh I 
oh, I want to do stuff. I want to make films now. I want to make... And it wasn't cinema at that point, nor was it even finished films. It was just like, I want to play with this camera and, and make a story. And so I'm starting to do that kind of thing. And they give you all the gear and nobody uses the gear because it, nobody knows how to. And I'm quite technically minded, so I'm beginning to just figure that out too. So I, I'm kind of somewhat trying to teach him myself and getting whatever advice I can. And then in Sheffield, there was also a thing called the SIF, which is the Sheffield Independent Film Unit, which was this kind of warehousey type building near the train station that was just an edit suite, sound recording studio. Behind that was Red Tape Studios, which is actually quite famous in that, you know, the Human League recorded there, Warp Records started out there. Um, so all that was there. And so I kind of somewhat joined that community of artists and I kind of started hanging out down there. It was a thriving scene full of culture and ambition. David felt inspired and continued to write. Just, you know, writing stories. And then I was typing them up on a little word processor, which uh, I could print out on a dot matrix printer. And then I started photocopying that stuff and making fanzines. Punk rock was happening. A lot of punk rock in Sheffield, a lot of electronic music in Sheffield, which I'm really into. I'm going to that stuff and I'm interviewing people now. And there's a lo local skate shop, uh, skate music shop, which becomes the, the tiny little corner record store that became... It was run by the guy, uh, Steve Beckett and Rob Mitchell at the time, who's now passed away, but, um, and the two of those guys founded Warp Records. And so I'd go in there and I was this young kid who was really enthusiastic and trying to, and I had like a really shitty, like eight page fanzine I'd done and, you know, and I was picking up all the free fanzines and buying, you know, for, and, um, and they were really encouraging too, uh, the guys at Warp. And they were like, you know, here, take this record. And they were like, I see, he said, well, you can't keep it, but you could tape it and give it as back and write a review for it. And I was like, all right, brilliant. I'll do that then. And and so they just opened the diversity of my music. How old were you at this point, David? 16, 17, 16. Like something like that. This, yeah. This is a great start, maybe, though. Yeah. But so it's just all this creative impetus that doesn't necessarily need, need to, it doesn't say film yet, but it's storytelling. So, um, and I'm BMXing, I'm writing for... Uh, BMX Action Bike, which would become Rad Magazine, Read and Destroy. And some music now, and industrial music. is re I'm really getting into all of that, and I'm making, uh, and I'm picking up a thing to do BMXing. I'm going to the Sheffield Independent Film Unit, and I'm taking free courses. You know, if you're a student, you get in for free. And there was an amazing guy who had a film program, which was like a, just a cultural educational film program. And that became, turned out, part of my college course I was doing. So I started watching films. And then suddenly, bang, everything just explodes because I'm watching David Lynch. I'd already seen a razor head, and it freaked the fuck out of me. And I didn't know why, but I liked it. Then this cinema club that I went to opened everything up. I saw Alexander Hororowski, and that changed my life. Nick Rogue, movies. I saw performance. And at this point, I'm editing now. I've got RM440s and, you know, three-quarter inch. And we're cutting, and I'm doing three-machine editing, which is really complicated, on Umatic, which is the three-quarter inch what format. What are you editing at and this I'm, point? I'm editing BMX material and just shit that I've shot. Okay. You know, um, just stuff. Narrative and stuff? There's no action stuff? A little or? bit, yeah. I, I actually did this whole kind of existential short film with me in a womb once, but... Uh, which lost a history, thankfully. Um, so already there's that. <laughs> it's just this kind of connection to the subconscious and dream logic coming into the film. But I'm doing VMX. But I'm also just trying to, you know, um, trying to just experiment with everything. Uh, Brian Eno, who released a bunch of these uh, video art installation pieces, which were where you turned your TV sideways and played this hour-long tape of like someone in a swimming pool. Um, I'm excited by all that stuff. And the art life and the art world is coming to me, but slowly. And I took all these courses, so I'm loading 16mm Buley cameras, figuring out how to use a Nagra, um, shooting Super 8, doing lots of animation. And I started watching Jan Svankmeyer, the, uh, the Czech surrealist. So what Jan was doing, again, his was quite political, his work, but it was surrealist film. It was a combination of live action and animation. 
together and some of it was um, claymation, some of it would be people pixelated, so moving, you know. And so I'm starting to mess around with that stuff. And then suddenly I'm at college. I've shown them my uh, shitty little womb film and my BMX uh, video, which hasn't finished yet, but I'm still cutting it. But I show them all these sections from it. And I tell them I'm reading William Burroughs because that's what I was told by someone to do which I wasn't. Um, so I went in kind of trying to pretend to be an artist and, and because I couldn't get into film school. I tried to, I applied to like the London Film College and those places and they all turned me down. After being turned down by the film schools, David thought he'd try his luck at a fine art course where they also happened to have a lot of film gear. So, so immediately, I mean, the first year I've got, this is after I've made the little womb film, um, so I finished cutting my uh, my little BMX film, which was a kind of documentary, funny, mad little one hour of just me hanging out with tons of BMXers and just interviewing them and shooting them doing BMXing. Um, so all of that gets me. I'm just excited about music, culture, industrial. You know, it's the Cold War at that point. Uh, Barry Hines's film, Threads, comes out. Threads is the first ultimate horror movie. This is that I see that really scarred me. And it's horrifying. It's it's a story about what happens after a nuclear war. As horror movies are starting to have a real effect on David's interest, he was starting to develop his skills. Uh, I'm just shooting all, just whatever interests me, and I'm cutting it together. And I'm reading these intellectual treaties on art film. And there's a book called Materialist Film by a guy called Peter Gidal. As he had a film called Axiomatic Granularity, which is just film grain. That's all it fucking was. It's film grain. <laughs> There's a film, famous film called Wavelength, which is just a slow zoom into a painting, you know, over an hour. This inspired David to try some experimental animation of his own. I kind of said, oh, I wonder if I could do this thing where I, because they had this rostrum camera, 16mm rostrum camera, uh, which was this great big machine made of cast iron. Um, but they had this, you know, if I stopped it right down and I used the, 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 the most macro lens they had, I could actually bring the camera down and do macro photography of Super 8 frames. So I, I got all my Super 8 material and I laid it on this light box and I photographed the, the frame really, really tight. And then I pulled back and did, did, did a timed zoom out. So you saw at a certain point, the kind of climax of the film was you saw like all of the frames. So like a, like a big rectangle of tiny little frames all moving, you know, they look like pixels. So I was doing that kind of stuff, always experimenting. David then started to focus on live action. And so and my friend Jed Wells, I talked about who's um, um, who runs the skate label Insane Skate in London. Um, he asked me if I could help him. He had a bunch of Super 8 of skateboarding. Um, and so I helped him cut all that stuff and I put that out and that got into the London Film Festival. And then suddenly I'm in the, you know, I've got credit in the London Film Festival, even though I didn't shoot it, I'm, I'm, you know, cutting, editing. And I got from that and the short films I'd done, I got asked if I would be interested in doing a little super low budget music video, uh, for the wedding present. There was a thousand pounds was the entire budget for everything. And they were doing 10 videos for a thousand pounds and the album was called the hit parade and every every record on it was a single so they made a video for every record and i spoke with uh gedge the, the singer and he's like you know, oh yeah we don't want to be in it or anything just make an arty film and i was like all right okay fine i can do that and then, so i got my friend who was a who was who was a um a performance artist and he you know dressed like a hobo and and and, and so we went out to the peak district and and, and i shot him I shot him lip syncing with a, you know, with just a boombox on super black and white Super 8. And then I shot all this pixelated stuff where he was, where the camera was running time lapse, but he was holding all these different positions as he was doing it. So he'd be singing like this, and then he'd be like, <laughs> and then I shot this entire fucking narrative sequence with an evil, with an angel and a demon in a white checkerboard room uh, with the prosthetics and everything. And we shot it over one day. And and then I cut it together, and I made this music video called Sticky. That was what it was called. The single was called Sticky, and it was my one thousand pound music video. And it was all right. It got on top of the pops. That's golden for me because 
I'm in Sheffield, cultural musical haven, and everybody needs music videos. And there's a lot of music going on. And my mates at Warp Records say, oh yeah, you, you should help, you know, can you help us out with this and that? And, and I'm starting to make music videos on Super 8. Um, but I'm not really interested in the performance aspect. I, that doesn't connect to me really. I'm just, in, I'm, I'm still interested in telling a really good story and, uh, and, and structure and um, the images to some degree and character too. I'm always trying to put characters and stories in, which, you know, which was probably a mistake at that point. It was time for David to make the big move from Sheffield to London. After he and some friends were ripped off by a corrupt landlord, they ended up living in a crummy little place in Peckham. Now all he had to do was break into this industry. Yeah, and so I got my show real. I made these short films. A lot of them are computer animated and that people seem interested in that. I'm still doing all of the fanzine work and the writing. And I just go around and I'm calling people I know. I think I, I think I phoned up Howard Greenhall at one point, the, the director, music video director, and asked him questions about like, how the fuck do you do it? What do you do? He said, well, you're going to learn to write treatments. Oh, what's the treatment? He's like, okay, this is, it's like a script, but it's really short, you know, and, and you have to sell an idea. Like, oh, okay, great, great, great. And he was lovely. Um, yeah, I spoke to him one time. And I went to a company called Media Lab, who were kind of interested in me, but not really. I'd figured out who Kevin Godley was, and I was like, that's fucking awesome. He's making images straight out of his head. So I managed to swipe a, a three-quarter umatic of his showreel and watch all the videos he'd done. And I'm seeing all these motion control things that he's doing. And I'm just like, oh, and Zvigny Rybczynski. Zvigny Rybczynski was an 80s uh, music video guy who did amazing video art. And he was an um, amazing um, artist who, to this day, Actually, he's, I think he's almost retired now, but for a while, he did like Rolling Stones videos and things. But Zbig was a huge influence to me. Uh, Z-B-I-G, Zbig Rybczynski. Um, and so I'm trying to meet Kevin Godley, and I get a meeting at Media Lab, and I remember it was really, like, fucking, I was really panicking and nervous about the meeting. But in the end, Media Lab are like, hmm, yeah, can't really do anything with you. But I met with one of the producers there. He said to me, this is what you need to do. You need to find a band like Kevin Godley found you too. And you need to ride on the back of that band and do all their videos. You need to find a really amazing band and turn down all the shit music and just do that. And I was like, yeah. that sounds like a great idea. I can't afford to do that, but fucking brilliant. You know, that's a, I'd love to do that, but I couldn't and I didn't because I need to eat. So I went around these different companies and Spidercom were the one that was interested because I had computer graphics on my showreel. Now, Spidercom, for those of you who don't know about Spidercom, Spidercom was a guerrilla music video company that started out the likes of Alex Rakoff, Guy Ritchie, started out there, like a new guy, I met, I met Guy then, um, and it was a bunch of maniacs. And they had an office in Darbley Street, which was the very top floor, so you had to walk up all the steps because there wasn't an elevator. And you go in there and it was an open plan office full of cigarette smoke because all the producers were in this one open plan room and this one small little room where you could close the door where the main guy, uh, was it Trudy Bellinger? It might have been Trudy Bellinger. She was a producer and a director at that time. She had an office that had the door that would close. And everyone else was just in this open plan area smoking and on the phone nonstop. And William Green, who's a big producer, he was there too. And um, and so they were like, all right, come on in, kid, put your work on. We got in there, and there was a on a rostrum on a on a kind of plinth up on there, right, you know, the ceiling. There was a you know a VHS player with a you know little Sony Trinitron up there. So I I played my tape, and they were like, yeah, yeah it's all right, yeah, it's all right, yeah, yeah, it's fine, yeah. All right, here's a track, uh, here's a cassette. All right, listen to it, uh, write a treatment for us for tomorrow. And I was like, what was that? It. He said, yeah, yeah, if you. You know, it's a German techno song, right? It's the music's terrible, but what you do is you write a two pages, three at the most, but not one, two. They won't read three, um, and of the just write the idea out. And so I said, all right, yeah, sure, fine, okay. um, uh, all right, I'll do that. So I went home, listened to this techno bagpipe song. Uh, it was a German techno bagpipe song. <laughs> 
It was awful. Terrible. And it was the entire thing was um, a man. It was Rad McClintock, who was a guy in a catalog called Uglies, which was the which was the casting catalog. Because I'd flipped through that looking for faces, and I'd seen this guy Rad McClintock, and he was basically wearing in this picture what I put him in in the you know in the in the video. So I got a bunch of people from RCA who were still at college to be production designers, and I got my friend to be one of the producers on it. And so we went and we shot this thing, um, and I cut, you know, I cut it myself on a two machine pneumatic suite in a place in an editing suite under a dent over a dentist's. And then I got my friend uh, Jess Scott Hunter to do the computer animated bits on a PC. And we'd met at college, and he was doing—he was working for computer games companies and doing all kinds of interesting things at that point. And it became number one in the German charts, and stayed in wow. the chart for six months. And suddenly, suddenly, I had a music career as a German oh. techno music video director <laughs> who did did the techno bagpipe song. That's how it works, right? You get that break doing something that you don't really want to be doing, yeah. and then everybody offers you yeah. that type of uh, music. Yeah. yeah, so I did a bunch of shit, yeah. but I actually got a bit paid a bit of money doing it. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And how long was it until you started doing some um, music for bands that you actually, or for artists that you actually liked? Really quickly afterwards, so by, within the year, I, I, I'd done LFOs tied up which was a, this, this kind of S&M, black and white, grainy, you know, yeah. 60 mil thing. And then I did Aphex Twin, Donkey Rhubarb. Um, and and then from there I started to do, like, 4ED suddenly were like, oh, yeah, you did Donkey Rhubarb, you can do a... Did a I did a rock video for Die Krups, a German industrial band, which I love doing. And I'm shooting 16 mil now. I still haven't shot any 35, but I'm, I'm understanding, you know, oh yeah, if you use the color, if you use the telecine to transfer the stuff rather than fucking shooting it off the wall on a projector, <laughs> you know, and that's a really big important because you can actually change not just the colors, but the texture of the film and that changes the feeling. So when you're shooting this band, are you, you've got a full film crew now, right? And Yeah, I'm starting to have a small crew. A very small crew. Still, still, we're still talking like the three grand. You know, there were these dish brackets of videos. There was the yeah. ten grand, the three grand, and the one grand. Yeah. Those yeah, were the, yeah. you remember that stuff, right? Where you're like, you know, you knew what you could do for three grand. And you know, and then there were these people who just was like, it was like, yeah. white side yeah, studio, yeah. singer. Yeah. That's what they did. Yeah. And a lot of people did that. So I could, I was always writing yeah. treatments that couldn't be done. You know, I was always trying to do more than I could possibly afford to and, and still do. And did you get uh, pushed back from the commissioners sometimes? When yeah, all the time. realize you can't do it? Do that? All the time, but I, yeah, all the time. But I was technically savvy enough. And I don't think I ever really pitched anything I couldn't actually do. I pitched stuff on the edge of my ability, but I never really pitched like stuff that was impossible. So I was always somewhat able to do it. And so but they'd be like, oh, this, you can't do this. And I'm like, well, let's, let me tell you how I'm going to do it. And I explained to them, they're like, all right, okay, it sounds like you can do it. All right, fine, <laughs> you know. Um, so I started doing videos for 4AD and cooler bands. And I was really into Warp Records were good friends of mine. They kept sending me the supermarket sweet box, which was just like loads of free CDs and records and stuff and T-shirts. Now that David's career was up and running, he had to figure out how he was going to make a living doing it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing my best to live on welfare, though it's hard. So I'm, I'm trying to get paid something. I'm living in, I was living in Streatham in a, in a council estate in a, uh, a rent control apartment that was basically free, but it was full of cockroaches and one point fleas. And you know, it was just, you know, I had some pretty awful times there in that one because, you know, I had this this thing of nightmares that kept coming and going, but in that place, it's like, you know, that thing you have about this bad houses, places where I could, it, it's the only place I could afford to live in, but it was a bad house and it was full of bad things. And I remember at one point there was an art exhibition in a skate art exhibition where a bunch of skate skaters came over through the fanzine stuff and a bunch of famous ones too. And a bunch of them crashed at my, in my rent control, Streatham place. 
and and I, I had some art in the in the exhibition. We did this thing at Slum City Skates, and one of them, two of them, freaked out um, and just all got out and ran out of the house and just ran away because they were like, "This place is fucking haunted." And then one kid said, "Like I was sleeping on a futon and there was a fucking bat on my head." I'm like, "There was no." About. But it was a bad house. Right. Anyway. Did you ever see anything in that house? or All kinds of things, yeah, in that house. But they're all peripheral things. You know, not um, not real, not real objective things. They're all just emotional feelings or that, that thing that's just beginning to appear in the periphery of your vision. I don't believe in hauntings. I don't... Um, but I believe in some things. I don't really believe in supernatural things. In fact, I'm very much against that. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat atheist. Anyway, so I'm in this horrible place. I'm, um, but I'm doing music videos, and eventually I'm managing to get some things done. I meet, I meet San, Cassandra Maxwell, who's a mental, insane lady, and she was heading up a. Um, a an offshoot of a of, of Jeff Stark, who's a big copywriter, you know, massive commercials director's company in London, and so the, he, she took me under her wing, and I was there with Walter Stern as well. He was there for a minute, mm-hmm. and we were writing treatments for bands and doing music videos, um, and um, trying to break into commercials, but always failing, never being able to break into commercials because that's where the money was, right? Music videos didn't really pay you money, but commercials could. And so I was hanging out with Cassandra um, and just writing treatments, writing treatments, just writing all the time. And this is something, you know, in terms of filmmaking, which is really good. And I know you did the same thing, Jeff. You, you, you know, as a director in music videos, in England at least, you've got to write your own treatment, which means you have to you know, like I was saying earlier, summarize in three pages or less, because no one's going to read more than that. So it's your, it's your script writing chops are getting, yeah. getting polished. Because the thing about that is, like any form, the thing about that, like any form, is that um, the more you do it, the better you become at it, and you learn from your mistakes. And, and, and you know, you, what you would do as a music video director at that point, which is late 90s, really late 90s, beginnings of the 2000s, is you um, you just pitch nonstop. You're writing treatments every day. You try, you're writing nonstop. You, you, sometimes you do like quick uh, yeah, a search replace the band's name for an old treatment or whatever, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you just bang, send yeah. it off, done that. Everyone's done that, right? You, you've got, and this is the thing, I remember reading this interview with Michel Gondry, who was a huge influence on me, and, and, and he was a, he's a generation older than me, but his stuff was just genius. amazing, fucking genius, yeah. absolute genius. And going, yeah, you've got one idea, you want to do it, it's telling you you have to do it. So you just keep pitching the same idea over and over again, which it's is, so I'd find an idea I really wanted to do, and I would just keep pitching it. I don't care who the band was, I'd be like, uh, and I'd just kind of listen to the song and figure out a way to justify it, and then send it over, you know. But then I'd do different ideas. So we're constantly pitching ideas and my film form is getting better. I'm understanding about the camera, understanding about character. And I'm beginning to understand the one crucial thing about music videos that I don't think I was conscious of for the very long time, which is that when you make a music video, it is a portrait of, of what can turn out to be a very famous, influential artist at that given time. And if you do your job successfully, you do a great portrait the way, you know, I know Richard Avedon or one of the great, mm-hmm. photo- you know, portrait photographers does, mm-hmm. and that you're recording a moment in time for that person. And I began to understand that, though I didn't have the words to tell you that, but I knew that the personality and the characters of the musicians I was meeting were was interesting. And I just got, I, I treated them like actors. I was like, we have to rehearse. We have to figure out what it is. Will do, and I actually would do rehearsals with musicians where we do playback in an office, and I'd get them to jump up and down and roll on the floor and get loomed up, and you know. And so I, you know, I was working. I never directed theatre, but I was working in the way you would do, I think, if you were directing theatre at that time, with actors. So suddenly I get this other reputation. Oh, he's really great with images, but he's really good at getting performances out of actors, out of out of musicians. 
you know so you that because your reputation you know your reputation is a bunch of keywords isn't it in music videos it's like oh he's good at x y and z he's really good at beauty and that's the thing you that's how they figure out because they get a hundred they might get a hundred treatments for a music video and there might be only 10 percent that might be able to fucking pull any of it off at that point because often as you find out when you get really good at that and start doing that people are just like well let's just find a good director and figure it out with that person yeah that was always my favorite way when they they you know mm -hmm. like i worked with mandy harris a whole bunch of times with yeah, ash yeah, yeah. And, absolutely and I, I, yeah. I, I would do like seven videos a year just at that record company and they would just call yeah. you in to meet the artists and you would sit down with the yeah. artists and you'd ask them what they were after and your interpretation and for me that was always the best yeah, and those Ash videos turned out great because there was this freedom and life to them that was there because yeah, of that. Yeah. Because there was a dialogue back and forth exactly. and it wasn't just about, like, you stand over there, I'm doing this. It's like you and Muse, uh, right? Because that was... Yeah, yeah, Muse were... I see... All right, so um, I move... Eventually, then I'm, I meet Pete Chambers, who's who I love, who's insane. But he's amazing and he is really responsible for investing in my career and pete had sage advice pete was always like you know I me mean, was mad in a good way and people loved him yeah um and he could do the thing that i couldn't do he was good at socializing with bands because he understood that you had to hang out with bands and i didn't do that i wasn't very good at that right pete chambers did a fantastic job of marketing david around london he would often boast about how certain music videos that they were doing would cost around £150,000, where in actuality, they were closer to sixty. Those guys kind of opened my eyes to the fact that production values were important. To me, it was all about ideas mm. and, and just the telling the story. I didn't care what the camera was. Pete's teaching me about production values. I'm meeting these, he's introducing me to these amazing technicians, like Jean-Clement Serret, mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, I was working with a guy called Adrian Siri, who was a colorist. Um, and he said, no, you got to work with Sean. John's an artist. You're an artist. He's an artist. You're going to get on great. So I did a video for Baby Bird, uh, the band Baby Bird. And shot first time I shot 35. And... He's like, yeah, you got to shoot 35, right? You've got to shoot 35, yeah. It gives it, gives it the edge, yeah, fucking great. And then you're working with John. John's a fucking guy. So I shot 35 for the first time. It's like night and day to me. I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, wait a second. So that depth of field I'm always fighting for to get, to separate this image from this image and, and give this feeling is clearly there. I'm not just like having to add diopters and, and, and add extension tubes or whatever I need to do to extenuate it. It's just there and it looks awesome. Yeah. And then he introduced me to Jean-Clement Saray, who, you know, I continue to work with to this day. He colored Bandersnatch for me, he colored Hard Candy for me, he colored, you know, um, the Twilight movie with me. Um, he introduced me to Jean and I understand from Jean that he can see color the way I see color too. And John and I just get along really, really well straight away, and we do great work together. And I'm pushing, you know, I'd pushed the 16 mil really far as thought I could see. I'd got to the point where I was getting a little bit frustrated with 16 because I'd pushed it as far as I could go. And then I meet John, and I'm like, wait a minute, why am I, why am I trying to drive this guy? He knows more than I do by miles and miles and miles about this. You know, um, I'm going to work with this guy. He's fucking awesome. And so, you know, and I would say to Jean, I have this image, I don't know how to do it, can you help me? I want, I want this technical look, but I want to make it really extreme. I want the skin tone to be completely separated away. You know, we always have problems separating skin tone away. I want it to be completely separated, because, oh, it's easy, just paint everybody green. And I was like, what do you mean paint everybody? It's like, you know, paint people green. That was my bad French. Perhaps I hope John doesn't hear us. So John says, yeah, well, you know, you paint him green, you know. And I was like, well, okay. And he's like, oh, because he, I don't think he thought I would actually do it, right? So I did a test. I, I, I got my, got me still, got a stills, I rented a stills camera because I didn't own one at that point, a good one. And Barney Jeffrey was my producer at that point. We went to someone's pre-light stage so we could have some even light. We put him through makeup and covered him in green makeup and we took photographs of him. And then we got the photographs scanned and we took him into Jean. 
And we looked at these photographs of Barney with green makeup on. And we started to push them, he started to push them around. And they were 35 mil neck, which was the important thing, because that, so we would understand how to behave. And we realized that, mm, well, there's a certain unnatural nature that's not what I'm looking for. And, and perhaps what we could do is just push the hue around on the green to yellow. So what we do is, why don't we, we could paint people yellow, and then we would have their skin tone separated, and everybody would look the same. And so we said, okay, we'll do that. And the band agreed. I was like, oh, stereophonics. Was it um, Mr. Ryder, right? Mr. Ryder, Was it yeah. um, applied by makeup? What sort of material yeah, did you... it was you... makeup. We, we used yellow makeup. Everybody looked like The Simpsons. It was the surrealist music video anyway. The band were dressed as clowns in a car, which was Kelly... Jones's idea. He's like, oh, I don't know. I only have one idea. It's a bunch of clowns in a car. And I said, all right, a bunch of clowns in a car. And he told me, he was like, yeah, he wanted to go somewhere in Wales and shoot people. And I was like, no, let's not do that. Let's do like a, let's do like a technical, a weird, you know, existential dream. And let's say that the car is on fire and it's crashed. And he goes, great. No, great. Okay. So this car, this is car. And we capture this one moment in time when this burning car full of clowns is 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 hit and has crashed and the whole video is going to be that's going to be one of the things we just go keep going to this one moment in time where this burning car full of clowns is on fire and then the rest of it was is is we have to you know we're, we're going to put you in the snow globe and, and i actually had a dream about part of the thing and i was doing drawings of trying to figure out the treatment for it and then i had this dream and it all pretty much all of it came to me in this dream and i was like okay great i'll write all that down and Kelly was, you know, Kelly was fine with that. So I was like, great. Okay, so, and then when we do you in the snow globe, we're going to be able to build a set so you look like you're in a snow globe. And I want to paint your skin yellow so that you look like a mannequin. And, you know, he's like, great, fine, we'll do all that. So we did it. And, you know, and John was like, oh, shit, we actually did it. <laughs> <laughs> that video set David up with a meeting with Muse. And soon they found themselves on a plane to Prague for their first of many music videos together. So we did this one in Prague, Newborn. And we had a really good, we did like a rehearsal session and he really, and he and I already got on. I was like, that thing you keep doing with your fingers. He's like, just push that further. He's like, oh, okay, right, 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 yeah, we, we do that. Yeah, right, right, do that. And, um, you know, do this thing, yes. And they're like, okay. And he's, you know, turn and look at the camera. I'm like, no, no, you don't look at the camera. We're in an existential space. Mm -hmm. We're not in a real space. If you look at the camera, you break the third wall. There's a time for that, but it's not going to be in this video. You know, so we talked language, and he understood language too. And so we talked. He talked about composing language, and we kind of got on really well. You know, I talked film form. He talked composing language. We found middle ground. Got on really well. Okay. Did a viewed video. Shoot was a bit of a disaster, but we got a lot of good footage. And then we did a little of a pickup shoot a couple of weeks later, um, and in London of just fans jumping around. And we did that video and that became quite big. Yeah, and, and then I did, and I think I'd already done Sun Temple Pilots in America. I went to America to do that. Okay. And uh, and that again was one of Pete's mates um, said, look, this is a massive video. It's gonna be good. I can give it to you, but you have to agree that you have to be part of this TV show about making the video. And you just have to be nice. Can you do that? Can you be all right? And Pete's like, well, he doesn't take any drugs and do any of that stuff, so he's safe. He should get. I don't know. I don't know whether he actually said that. I imagine he probably said something like, I don't know what he said. I'm making all that up. But um, so I, I was shipped off to California for the first time ever um, to make a video for the Stone Temple Pilots, and that was a whole other world. That was like a dream to me as well. And I realized straight away when I got to America that all these other things which we haven't talked about to do with money can make a feature film by this point were possible there mm -hmm. but they weren't possible in london mm -hmm. because i'd been meeting people at the british film institute and places with a script that i'd wanted to make and it was a very closed club the film club mm -hmm. the, the the industry um Why is that, with very um, like all institutions, it relies upon accesses that are controlled, gatekeeping that are controlled. So I didn't go into any, I didn't go to any of the film schools. Film schools are one of the accesses too. So if you, you know, you went to the RCA or you went to the, the British Film School 
or someone like that, you were more likely to get a grant and all that stuff. Yeah. Now, you could meet people and they would talk to you about films as long as you are. They, people would had whole careers which were, you know, uh, getting sandwiches and having tea and talking. Yeah. But they weren't going to make your film. And I, I became wise to this quite quickly that all these people I was meeting, I was meeting with, were unable to make the film. So I was like, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of London. David, is that a script that you had written? Or so at that point, that was a film called This Way to Egress, which was a short story that I had with my friend Charlie Cantor. He had made this movie called Blood that he was cutting, and he was going around and showing people, but he hadn't finished it, but he was cutting it, and he got it with some arts grant, and he made it for no money. It's a vampire movie. And he'd met these producers who wanted to work with him because he was a director and he'd made something yeah. and they were trying to be produced right so they said okay here's here's this novel we've got the rights to it can you read this novel and it was peter fowler novel called spanky and it was a demon supernatural it was terrible anyway he said okay well charlie's like i don't really want to make that because i'm too busy doing this but meet my friend david who's a music video director he's actually you know he's actually making really you know, films that look like films. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like really, you know, he's got money. He's doing stuff that looks like it costs money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he says you should meet these producers. I meet them. They've got this novel. Here's a here's a here's a here's a paperback copy. I'm getting on a plane to go and do a video for Apollo 440 in, in Los Angeles and read the novel. So I read it on. I kept putting off reading it, and then eventually I read it on the plane. It was terrible. Right. So we got. I eventually got back. I said, look, I just this is shit. <laughs> we can't do this. And the producer was like, all right, that's fair enough. Yeah, it's great. And we're like, oh, okay. And we thought you'd be upset. No, no, it's fine. So, do you have anything else? And I read this short story called Traumatic Descent. And I gave it to my friend Charlie, who was a you know writer. And as far as I was concerned, he should write this thing. And I read it, and it, and it really spoke to me. It 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 connected with me because it, it was a horror story, like a Twilight Zone story. But it was it was very much my experience. It was my experience of people around me. Uh, it was it was about mental illness i think eventually uh, it was about um subjectivity trust it was all kind of, it was all of these themes that i was interested in it was a horror movie after the movie didn't get any traction with his producers and david's friend and writing partner got diagnosed with cancer david decided to move to the us to help get this project going so i get I'm the last director in England signed to propaganda films. And then, so I was, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got, finally got the, you know, uh, including, you know, like a, a visa and a, all the stuff you need to do it. All that's agreed when suddenly bank, propaganda goes bankrupt. And then 9-11 happens and the whole world shuts down. kind of gets back on its feet i do a bunch of muse videos uh i remember doing the second wave of muse videos when you know there were planes flying over Mm -hmm. you know we were all uncertain about the future of the world then one day while visiting his friend director chris cunningham at rsa films jake scott tells david that he'd like him to meet somebody and suddenly there's ridley scott you know, with his cigar, his feet up, no shoes on. He's got a little white kind of, I'm sure it's a thousand dollar Gucci shirt probably, but uh, he's got this, what looks like a kind of, um, you know, like an underwear shirt on. And he's reading a copy of the screenplay for Hannibal, which he hadn't, which he's not made yet. But he has made Gladiator. Yeah. And that's fucking awesome. So I agree, get them to agree to this. This is the deal that we work out. That I'll go and join RSA in America. If I can go and live in America, and that can become my, basically my primary area of work, and I'll stick with Bullet in the UK for now. And, but you've got to get me, you've got to join me in the DGA, which, which they didn't do, but because um, it turned out not to be a good idea to begin with uh, you've got to get me a work visa and you've got to relocate me which they agree to totally and so 
you know, and I did that Rob Dugan video, which was probably yeah, one of the best it. music videos I did. In South Africa, and though, then, right? which is, I've been, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we shot it in South Africa in the end. And it was with Rob, it was with uh, Pete Chambers and, and Barney Jeffrey at Bullet. And so, and, and that's an example of like, you know, you pitch the idea over and over and over again, and then the right song comes along. Because the thing about music videos, as you know, as you always, we all know now, but we, you know, it's a slow learning process is the song is the most fucking important thing. A really great video for an okay song mm. is going to be shit. <laughs> but an okay mm. video shot well for a great song is yeah. still going to yeah. be legendary. But I was on to the next thing, and the next thing was making this movie. I really wanted to make a film while I was making videos for like Turin Breaks and all those people, in, in, and rock videos for American bands that loved the Sundable yeah. Pilots video that I did. Um, and I, I'm still trying to make this movie and I'm writing all the time. And, and then, so we got This Way to Egress, which was the horror movie. Uh, and then 2002, uh, I'd just done a video for System of a Down. And my friend Charlie died, passed away. He, 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 he his heart gave out in the truth so. that he was having. So I put that. So I went, you know, I went to England, went to the funeral. After going back to England and paying his respects, David couldn't face pursuing that movie anymore. So he shelved it, at least for the time being. Later, 17 years later, I would make it as a short film, part of the Nightmare Cinema uh, anthology. And I'm really, really pleased with it. And, I, and it emotionally really was an important thing to do. And we're thinking about now, actually the writer I worked with on that film who wrote the original short story and so he and I eventually adapted that um, his, his short story into a 20 minute short version of the, the feature length mm -hmm. film that we had before and we dedicated it to Charlie um, but we, we worked on it together we both wrote that well, I wrote it first and then he helped me with it he added a couple of scenes to it later and he has now just finished an adaptation, Fantastic. a feature-length adaptation. Um, so that may happen, um, but the short film version has happened already. And then so um, I'm back in Los Angeles. I am um, making more music videos um, and trying to break into commercials still. Still haven't really done it. I've done a handful of commercials. The success in music videos caught the attention of a high-profile agent and a manager who were both wanting to sign David and help him find his first movie. That's when Hard Candy arrived in his inbox. It's written by Brian Nelson, uh, who was a playwright, uh, who had written some television, and was the brainchild of a producer called David Higgins, who was and is... Uh, a lovely and really passionate human being and a producer who'd worked out of the studio system, but had kind of found his own voice and had become an independent producer. And so David had this script. And in a way, I was ready for David because David was kind of, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm just a filmmaker who's made a bunch of short films and I've made my own feature film with my friends and now I'm making a studio movie. It was like the process of going through commercials and videos prepared me for David and how to how to communicate with him because I understood that this guy who'd worked in the studio system knew what he wanted, but he was capable of giving me the freedom to do what I wanted mm -hmm. too. And as long as we didn't kind of rub each other the wrong way, we could do something not just um, special and powerful with this script but something that could really stand the test of time. And it isn't something great that just disappears, but something, you know, because I thought the writing was phenomenal and I had this vision for it. And there was a lot of Hitchcock and I kind of, I didn't talk about Nicholas Rogue and Alexander Hodorowsky, although I eventually did with them. But, you know, I taught more Hitchcock because that was the thing to sell, right? You know, um, and, and then we started casting for that, and it took ages to cast it, but I was still doing music videos. Did you change much in the script, or was the... Two things, only two things. Uh, changed two things in the script. Um, one of them I don't remember what it was, and it wasn't important, um, but I kind of wanted to. 
I think it was to do with like number of locations, trying to bring that down and make it more insular. And the other one was just a line that I wanted to change because I thought yeah. the script was really good. And Brian was a great writer. And we just disag- we disagreed on one thing in the script and it was something silly. It wasn't even an important thing. And I said, it's not important. I just think, you know, I just think we should change this one thing. And, and I actually don't want to say what it was because it was, wasn't important. But he did change that one thing for me and we got on great. And, um, and then we found Ellen Page and Ellen read and our casting director at that point um, said this girl's really special she's not been in anything in America she's been in a couple of Canadian films and some TV but and I saw I saw her self tape and I was like oh my god so then we met Ellen and we brought and she came to RSA actually and I did it in Ridley's conference room I did it I, read, I did a read with her and we did a bunch of takes till we got it because I knew that if I could capture a fragment of who this girl was and show it to other actors I'd be able to get the film made yeah right because there was no you know the, the finance was eh, it's going to be like $900,000 and you know a Paul Allen's company uh, Vulcan um, we were kind of thinking of doing it but they had a lot of things that they wanted to control that we weren't going to let them control so it was a, and then we got Alan she came over uh, she she came over from Canada and me and the producer we paid for a flight and put her in a Best Western hotel for a day so she could kind of just read with me and we we did a little workshop and we and I gave her and I sat with her um, I sat with her opposite her hotel you know on Sunset Boulevard on uh, Sunset Boulevard in a Starbucks and we and I gave her these notes on the seat and she said okay this is a lot of work I said yeah is that all right she's like yeah but you know it's a lot of work I'm like, I know I know it's a lot of work she's like I could just read I'm like you could just read but would you do the work she's like yeah I'll do the work right so then she came in the next day and she was amazing and we did a bunch of takes, and it was just me in a you know handheld camcorder shooting that, so we could show that to people. So I had this tape, and I could meet actors, and I could show them. This is Haley. And they saw Ellen, and they were like, "Yeah, that's fucking yeah. awesome. <laughs> I want to be part of that because you've got that thing. You've got it. That's going to be amazing." I don't know who I was. I mean, I'm like, you know, I could talk, show them commercials and stuff I'd done, but none of that means anything yeah. to an actor. They've just got a script and they're looking for who is yeah. that person that, that that's going to, you know, be the scaffolding upon which they can build. And we had Ellen. So getting Patrick was quite easy. So then that was that. We were doing Hard Candy and Falcon was financing it for $900,000. We were shooting it in 18 days. And, um, and then we rehearsed five days, maybe. We didn't rehearse the big scenes because mm-hmm. we knew we couldn't. We just mm-hmm. talked about them. Um, and I storyboarded every single shot that I did. I had a fucking binder of storyboards this thick. And I realized in doing the work that I needed more days to shoot than I could possibly have to do it the way I wanted to. So I did a cheat. And the cheat was this. And it was a, it's a thing I constantly do in my work. I, the cheat was a massive risk. The cheat was this. I need, I've got 18 days. No one's going to give me any more than 18 days, maybe 18 and a half if I can do a splinter unit thing. I've got to divide 18 days into a thing where I get enough time to shoot all these scenes mm-hmm. properly. So I've got too many scenes. What am I going to do? I've got this mental big scene. It's yeah. all about acting. It's not about the not about anything else it's about acting it's really about illusion it's about uh, it's about deception it's about withholding the truth it's about a battle of wills and then it's about acting so and I was like you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna there's like this 18 page scene here I'm gonna do all that in one shot right. because yeah. I can do that. I can do all of those things. I can withhold the information. I can go really tight to the actor. But then if I've got one shot and I rehearse it, the actors can have complete freedom as long as they don't mind, 
you know, me forcing the blocking a bit. And that's going to now get me a massive page count in this day and a half that I'm going to shoot this in. And that's going to allow me to shoot the film the way I want to shoot the film. And it's a massive risk because it could have fallen apart. The producers got me to bring in an extra camera, which I never used. Um, just they paid for it. They're like, yeah. we're really nervous. And I was like, I'm not nervous at all, but I was. I was in my pants. But it was important. I realized also at that point, because it wasn't easy to do it all, but I'd done all the prep. I realized that a lot of the stuff was inside my comfort zone and that I needed to do something in this film that was outside my comfort zone. Because it was building upon techniques I'd use in music videos and commercials and, uh, you know, the color, the color, the whole Nicholas Rogue, you know, approach to the surface of the film and of like, you know, it's okay if it goes, if the color temperature changes in within a shot in the scene, because as long as it's emotionally driven and the timing is correct, all of, I had all had bags of that shit to do. All of this emotional tonal stuff. Which I, um, which I saw described in the review as uh, my ad man's bag of tricks, <laughs> which is another way, which is another way to say it. Um, I knew I was going to do all that stuff, and I was excited for it, but I needed more time. So, and it was a massive risk doing this. And I think Yo, the, Yo Willems, the DOP that I shot, you know, many music videos with, and his family to me, and his, you know, shot that. I think it was his first. It wasn't his first first movie. But it was his first movie to actually get released and and, and uh, we were he, he could tell he was like are you sure you want to do this you know and I'm like yeah we have to do it and I got Ellen and Patrick on board and we knew what we were going to do we knew what the scene was we knew what the blocking was and I was prepared how late into the shoot was this it's about halfway through we shot that scene okay so you're all comfortable with each other at this point and you've yeah. got a good rhythm going yeah. yeah yeah no it was that was also important that yeah. too I remember I remember the day before my first day of shooting which of course you'd never sleep the night before your first shoot day mm-hmm. and me suddenly going someone said something to me about it was the it was the script supervisor I mean I'd never had a script supervisor before really she said something about line theory I'm not like and I was like I, I haven't been to film school I don't know what line theory is what the fuck is line theory I don't so I remember the night before my first ever movie, pulling out like whatever I had in the way of like fucking, you know, filmmaking handbooks and reading up on line theory and going like, what the fuck, okay, so wait a minute. So there's a line here and you stood this side of the line, you gotta be this side of the line. Okay, that makes sense. I, I think I can do that. Yeah, but but okay, but but literally the night before my first day of shooting having to look up line theory. And you know, and that's something they teach you in film school, but I didn't have one in film school, so I never I knew that stuff instinctually. And yeah. it was quite easy once I got going it, you know. Uh camera left, camera right, all that stuff really kind of came very naturally to me. But there was this fucking my heart leapt when I was like, wait a minute, there might be a great big enormous black hole in the middle of my experience here that's gonna stop yeah. me from making the movie. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I just gotta fucking stay up all night, learn this shit and you know Anyway, the night before um, your first movie, yeah. Yeah, first day. And so we shot it in 18 days. I made the choice to do that stupid, crazy 18-page, uh, one-shot thing. Um, and that worked. And it was important that it worked because it, there were so many things that you don't really... Um, that I think what are why that film works that are to do with my ability... Um, to improvise a little bit as well and be prepared enough to know how to improvise and then have the freedom to do it when I saw something astonishing in the acting that if it was a commercial or whatever wouldn't have happened but I knew oh shit I planned all of this but she's doing this mm-hmm. and he's doing that yeah and I gotta shift it all throw it all away yeah but I know what the template is that I'm going to shoot, so I'm going to keep that in my head, and I'm going to shoot this way instead. Yeah. And this thing here, we can't end the scene here. We have to let the camera roll for a bit longer and watch what she does, because every take she does something awesome, different, and we're going to keep that. We did. Now, just a second there. So you're shooting an 18-minute, 18 18-page, 18 18-minute scene. You shooting digitally then at this point? No, nope, no, nope, that was film. So, so what did you do? What for we that? did was we had two cameras. And at a certain point, one transfers to the other, and there were two invisible cuts. Right. So it wasn't continuous, continuous. It's, it was two shots stitched together. Right. 
and there was a and we also had a steady we had another camera with a hundred thousand foot mag on it that was kind of there just in case one ran out that would roll later right 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 so that we wouldn't lose the time because that's a big that's a really clear point there that you know you, you with a thousand foot mag you might be right on the edge of yeah, it yeah yeah so there was this whole thing that happened up to a certain point and then the camera goes around and rotates around this and goes through this wall and comes out the other side and there's an invisible cut in there mm-hmm. and then it takes her out but we all we did it all in one continuous thing it was just two cameras stitched together so you didn't shots, you didn't shots. cut and you didn't reload that camera you chose to have a second no, camera no we had there waiting had, no this up. this camera handed off to that camera right just to keep the that, energy of the scene? Yeah, or? keep all the scene going. And that camera followed all the way out of the room, all the way to the kitchen, did all the scene in the kitchen, then brought it back to the room. And then there's a, and then, and then there's a little cut there, but then the thing really changes because it's been this one continuous... And I knew that, I knew this. I knew that if I could maintain complete control over the viewer's eyes for that amount of time without a cut, that they would not be able to look away. Mm-hmm. And so that would give the actors the freedom to do the amazing, emotional, kind of human, insanely dark shit that we probably wouldn't have got away with otherwise, with some life to it that is so true (laughs) that you can't dissect it and say, no, we shouldn't do that. It's too much. It's too much is the thing that you often hear. So we did that, and that gave me the ability to shoot it all uh, in the time I had and make my days and get my film. Hard Candy was then accepted into Sundance, and David was flown out for the screening. I, you know, Sundance is just a legend to me. I, I, I don't know, you know, I've never been before. I, um, so... It's amazing, and it, and it, it it it's just this incredible fantasy story in my mind now. Uh, I go to Sundance. We're not in competition, uh, which doesn't seem to bother me at that point. I didn't didn't um, realize there was a competition at Sundance. Um, I was just there, and we had screenings. And what the screenings we had were the midnight screenings. And then what's happening in a couple of two two or three days in before the premiere night. A buzz starts about our movie and people are talking about it a lot. And then next thing we know, we sold out. And then next thing we know after that, it's the night of the screening. And people are fighting in line to get tickets because turns out we sold out because we're not in the biggest theatre. And lots and lots of people are trying to get in. A lot of studio representatives, a lot of people who would normally buy the film are trying to get in. And so there's a fight. There's fights going on outside. I mean, not like fist fights, but people pushing each other around and getting really nervous that they're not going to get in. So that's okay. And then I remember the sound blew out as we were testing this, this, before people were let in. It was kind of running in and out of the projection room and trying to figure out. And then we got the sound back on. It was the, it was the surround sound that had given out, but then it came back and then we were good. And then they let people in. And we gave a, it was me and Patrick and Ellen went on stage and introduced the film and basically said, I don't like it, it's what it is, if you're going to try and buy it. We said, I said, because um, that happens. No, that we're not changing anything. <laughs> it is what it is. Everything about it is what it's finished. And then, so that's what we did. And then we screened it and it was a really good screening. It was a really, you could tell the audience completely into the film there were the, you know the, the big scene two-thirds of the way through where everything's very tense was incredibly tense people left people kind of walked out um, which was great <laughs> and sure enough shortly after the screening finished the bidding started and my agent says You've got to go with us we've we're, there's a bidding people are bidding on the film and I'm like but what I'm like, yeah, 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 no, it's happening straight away. People are making bids, uh, so you have to come with us. So we went up in the freezing. At this point, it was like one in the morning or whatever, and it, ice everywhere. Fell on my ass a couple of times, fell on my ass a couple of times. Walking up the hill with no, with the elevation, I was out of breath, really. Got really sick, everybody got sick that year. Um, and we went to an all-night bidding war that started at then and went on until six in the morning 
and people came in, Focus Films at the time came in, Warner Independent, which doesn't exist anymore, came in to talk about the film Lionsgate. Peter Block at Lionsgate was the main, he really wanted the film. Um, and so there was this bidding war, and, and as a result, the film, I don't know how much money it sold for, but it sold for a good amount of money for an independent film. I said, oh, is this, how is, it, is this, how is this going? I said to my agent, how does this go? Like, in, in the scheme of things, it, how's it going? I mean, you, you must have gone through this before. He goes, no, I have never been through this before. Amazing. <laughs> Which was great. Well, listen, that's, um, that's a great way to end uh, the first part of the show. Uh, after the break, we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about um, your process and the more defining moments in your career. David Slade, thank you very much. Lovely. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'm not going to ask you to give it a five-star review or for you to subscribe. And there is no Patreon site. I created this show to help people who don't have mentors or role models. People who want to work in the film industry but don't know which path they should take. So if you know someone who might like or benefit from the show, all I'm asking is for you to share it with them. And who knows, maybe one day you'll be listening to their story. Remember 19 media.